Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. There's a recurring line in the musical Hamilton. George Washington says to Alexander Hamilton, you have no control over who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Today we're featuring an episode of the podcast, This Is Her Place, which tells the stories of Utah women past and present. In this episode, we talk about two women who were determined to take control and make sure the true story of their people was told. May Timbimbu Perry, historian and matriarch of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone, and Betty Sawyer, community engagement coordinator in access and diversity at Weaver State University, and an activist on issues of racial justice in Utah for more than 40 years. And we're also talking with uh, podcast co-host Naomi Watkins. Well, today we're going to hear episode five from This Is Her Place. The uh, title of this episode, Who Tells Your Story? We're going to be talking about Betty Sawyer and May Timbimbu Perry. Say, Naomi, uh, what uh, briefly at the beginning here would you like people especially to, to listen for? I, I mean, both of these women, May Perry and Betty Sawyer, you know, had to learn their own people's story before they could tell it to other people. And I think that's an important piece to this, right? It's important to know who we are and where we come from. And I'm reading from the website here, just quoting here, there's a recurring line of the musical Hamilton. George Washington says to Alexander Hamilton, you have no control over who lives, who dies, who tells your story. And so we're going to say in this episode, we talk about two women determined to take control, make sure the true story of their people was told. That's really an element that connects these two women. For sure. And May Perry, you know, is telling about the massacre of her people. And Betty Sawyer is talking about and sharing about Juneteenth, which I had not even learned about until a couple of years ago. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's good to delve into this history, isn't it? For sure. If you happen to be near Union Station in Ogden, Utah on Saturday, June 20th this year, you might have been surprised to see Wall Street filled with all kinds of cars, from Suburbans to Camaros to Volkswagen Beetles bumping down the street. It was a full-on socially distanced party with music pulsing and people honking and cheering as part of Utah's annual celebration of Juneteenth, a holiday that celebrates the freeing of American slaves after the Civil War. But the caravan was not one of the events originally planned as part of this year's month-long festival. It was a last-minute addition, part of a scramble to take Juneteenth virtual after the COVID-19 pandemic threatened to derail months of planning and work, and organizers had to get creative. We couldn't do an outdoor celebration. Everybody wanted to get out. And so we decided that we'd invite people to get in their cars and meet us. We had over 200 people come out to be a part of the caravan. And we rode through town by our public safety building, by the farmer's market, and did a lot of honking. And people had all of their signs around not just Juneteenth, but Black Lives Matter, and, you know, supporting those movements that are going on at this particular time. And our police, of course, led us on that parade route, on that caravan route. So that was important as well to show that solidarity and support with what we were doing. Betty Sawyer is the director of the Utah Juneteenth Freedom and Heritage Festival and Holiday. For her and her team, canceling the Juneteenth event was never an option because it's so much more than a party. It's a way to share the history of her people and do critical community work. Our Juneteenth event here is not just about celebrating culture, but we look 
for this as an opportunity to share critical information and critical resources. And so even with our virtual celebration, we had to be really creative to keep some of the traditions of our celebration intact. Today on This Is Her Place, we're talking about two women who have worked on behalf of their communities in many ways, including making the histories of their people known. May Timbimbu Perry, historian and matriarch of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone, and Betty Sawyer, community engagement coordinator in access and diversity at Weber State University, and an activist on issues of racial justice in Utah for over 40 years. Both women had to first learn their histories for themselves. Once they did, it took decades of work to get that history recognized both nationally and in Utah, and their efforts have left a lasting impact on the state. Ready, Tom? I'm ready. Okay. Welcome to This Is Her Place, the new podcast that tells the remarkable stories of Utah women past and present. I'm Naomi Watkins. And I'm Tom Williams. We'll be introducing you to poets and politicians, artists and activists, healers and homemakers, compelling women, women who inspire us with the unique ways each of them has truly made Utah her place. We really appreciate you joining us and ask that you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So today we're talking about stories, not just individual stories, but stories of people and cultures, especially those that haven't been widely known or told. And we're going to focus on two women who have done the work of bringing those stories to light. So in addition to planning Utah's Juneteenth celebration, Betty Sawyer was an important part of the effort to get Martin Luther King Day recognized as an official holiday in Utah. For May Timbimbu Perry, it was about getting the Battle of Bear River, renamed the Bear River Massacre, in recognition of the hundreds of her ancestors who were slaughtered by the U.S. cavalry there. And you know, there's a recurring line in the musical Hamilton where George Washington says to Alexander Hamilton, you have no control over who lives, who dies, who tells your story. But these women were determined to take that control and tell the story of their people that wasn't being told. And when you frame it that way, I think it's especially important right now to recognize that part of what many people across the country are fighting for, in addition to some specific policy changes, is representation in the narrative, for their stories to be told from their perspective, and for people to really listen to that perspective. That's part of what Betty Sawyer does through Juneteenth and her work in dozens of other ways. And representation and an accurate narrative is also what May Timbimbu Perry demanded for her people. Yes, and she began at a very young age to grapple with the tension between the official narrative and what she knew was true. May Timbimbu Perry was 13 years old in 1932 when the Daughters of Utah Pioneers unveiled a monument on the site of what was then called the Battle of Bear River. It was a pillar of rocks with a plaque praising the U.S. soldiers who fought there on January 29, 1863. May Timbimbu Perry had grown up hearing stories about that 1863 attack in which the soldiers brutally killed hundreds of men, women, and children of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Tribe, the single worst slaughter of Native American people in American history. Her grandfather, Dabuzi Timbumbu, had been one of just a handful of survivors. But the monument didn't tell the full story of what had happened to the Shoshone that day. And even at age 13, May Timbumbu Perry would have seen clearly what white people were calling a battle was in fact a one-sided massacre. 
Here's her grandson, Darren Perry, talking about the monument unveiling. There was a big celebration, actually, that took place that day. There were scout groups, community people, church leadership was there. And they had a stage right in front of this rock monument. And on the stage, I've got a picture of some of the Native American people dressed up in their full regalia. And they were sitting on the stage at the unveiling of this monument, which if you go there today and you look at it and you read the history and what's on the plaques, it's really a horrific monument. I'm not sure the Shoshone really knew what was taking place that day. It was a photo op for the locals, and they hadn't unveiled it yet. But I can imagine my grandmother being there in the audience. She knew how to read. She was starting to be educated. And then they take this off. But I can imagine her reading that plaque and being horrified that it talks about the brave soldiers and the pioneer women who took care of them after the encounter. And they call it an encounter. So I can imagine my grandmother just being. So this is it. This is a memorial, a monument to what took place on this ground. I am positive that served as a huge motivation factor for her. You know, this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't the story. Maitin Bimbu Perry went on to write the true story of what happened to her Shoshone ancestors that day in 1863, as passed down in her family. It all started when white settlers arrived in Utah and Idaho in the 1840s. The Shoshone tribe was a large nation whose territory covered parts of Idaho, Utah, Nevada, and Wyoming, with the northwestern band of the tribe living in northern Utah and southeastern Idaho. They were nomadic gatherers, hunters, and fishermen who spent winters in a village along the Bear River near Preston, Idaho. Relations with the white settlers grew tenuous, and several violent incidents between another Shoshone band and white settlers led to an arrest warrant for all Shoshone chiefs in 1863, including the leader of the Northwestern Band, Sagwich Timbumbu. Around the same time, U.S. Colonel Patrick Edward Connor was ordered to bring his men from California to Utah to make the arrests and keep peace in the region. The white owner of the local grocery store warned the Northwestern Band, as May Timbubu Perry later wrote, Chief Sagwich believed they could and would negotiate a peaceful settlement. But what the Shoshone did not know was the murderous intent of Colonel Connor to kill the entire band of men, women, and children. Reading May Timbubu Perry's record of the events that followed is her granddaughter, Amy Romney. On the bitterly cold morning of January 29, 1863, Chief Sagwich rose early. He left his teepee and stood outside surveying the area around the camp. The bluff above the river to the southeast appeared to be covered with steaming mist. As he continued to watch, the mist appeared to lower along the bluff. Suddenly, Sagwich realized what was happening. The soldiers from Camp Douglas in Salt Lake City had arrived. Sagwich started calling to the sleeping Shoshone. The Shoshone quickly gathered their bows, arrows, and tomahawks. A few men had rifles and a very limited number of cartridges. Chief Sagwitz shouted to his people to refrain from initiating any hostile action. It was his intention to meet with the military people and negotiate the delivery of those few troublemakers to the military. But negotiation was never in the mind of Colonel Connor. The Shoshone tried to defend themselves, but arrows and tomahawks did little against the rifles and sidearms of the soldiers. 
the Shoshone men, women, children, and babies were being slaughtered like rabbits, butchered by Colonel Connor and his troops. The military said the fighting lasted for four hours. The Shoshone claimed that the military was there the whole day. Soldiers spent the remainder of the day murdering those who were found alive on the battlefield. After the Shoshone were massacred, the soldiers burned their teepees and gathered their food and clothing and also burned it. By day's end, the soldiers had killed roughly 250 Shoshone, nearly annihilating the Northwestern Band. Some 13 Shoshone did manage to escape, including Dabuzi, the 12-year-old son of Sagwich, who would tell the story of this massacre to his children and grandchildren, including young mate Mbimbu Perry. Descendants of the white settlers and soldiers told their version of the story as well, including that rock pillar monument unveiled in 1932. I can imagine my grandmother just being, so this is it. This is a memorial, a monument to what took place on this ground. I can imagine the, the thoughts she must have had with reading that and how the people of Franklin County wanted to remember the events of that day. And so you always got to remember monuments you got to be careful with because monuments only let you see what they want you to see. May Timbibu Perry's path to recording the story of her people started with her schooling at Washakie Day School in the town by the same name on the northern edge of Utah. Washakie, named after a Shoshone leader, was established in 1880 by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the Northwestern Shoshone. But like many Native American children of the time, May Timbimbu Perry also attended a boarding school in Riverside, California, far from her home and traditions. Boarding schools were a tactic used by the U.S. government to assimilate Native American children into white American culture. Maytimbibu Perry wasn't beaten the way kids at many of these schools were, but she was punished for speaking her language or talking about her culture. And after a couple of years, she opted to stay home and attend the Washakie Day School. She would still come home to a tribal community, to a family that was immersed deeply in their culture. And so, you know, as much of that assimilation process it didn't really take hold in her and a lot of the Native children. When they returned home, it was, you know, back to the way her people had always lived. And thank goodness for that. It still instilled in her a rich, just feeling of making sure that her culture was preserved and the story that her people had gone through was told. Maytimbubu Perry later attended and graduated from Bear River High School then earned a degree in English from LDS Business College, giving her the skills and training to be her people's storyteller, to capture the stories they'd always orally shared from generation to generation. The storyteller would be like the PhDs of a community. They're the keeper of the history. They're the keeper of the education, of disseminating knowledge to the tribe. And so that wasn't done all year round. For nine months out of every year, the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone would hunt and gather and prepare for the winter when they would camp on the Bear River, just north of Preston, Idaho. That was called the Elders' Time. It's a time where everybody renewed acquaintances, most of the Shoshones in the area. They would camp there because of the many hot springs that are along the river. They could get a warm bath every day, and it was just a beautiful place to spend the winter. It was protected by a big hill on the north from the north winds, and it was protected by the red twig willows. And so that time, those three months of harsh winter conditions in the Cache Valley, 
or spent in your teepee, in lodges, and talking about disseminating knowledge, teaching the young children what they needed to know and what they had been taught by their elders as they were growing up. Having that title as the storyteller, it's the keeper of the sacred records. They didn't have books, they didn't know how to write, but they knew how to tell stories and they knew how to listen. May Timbimbu Perry continued this storytelling tradition. She married a white man from Malad, Idaho, Bruce Perry, who was the son of the Washakie school teacher, and they had six children. Darren, her grandson, spent a lot of time at her home as a kid while his parents worked, learning the stories of his people from his grandmother. I think I was in a high school sophomore class, and my teacher said, we're going to talk about Native American history next week, about the tribes that are in Utah. And I thought, great. My friends and others, peers, are going to be able to hear the stories that I knew and hear about my culture, and I don't have to tell it. And so the day gets there, and they start talking about the Shoshone people, and I'm just thinking, who are these people? I have no idea what she's talking about. And so it's just, it really hit home to me that the history that is taught in our history books is not the history from the perspective of the people who lived it, the Shoshone people. May Timbibu Perry visited many local elementary classrooms, sharing the stories and traditions of the Shoshone people. And when it came to the history of the massacre, she didn't tell the story only as she knew it. She researched and read transcripts and interviews from soldiers and survivors, and then she compiled this into a written account and worked to amplify this narrative of the massacre of her people at a national level. Just getting it exactly factual right by the people who were there, that was a big deal to her. And then taking all of this information to Washington, D.C. more than 10 times. The National Park Service called it the Battle of Bear River. All the signage, all the things that you read about in, from the National Park Service identified it as a battle. And she just went to Congress that many times to say it wasn't a battle. And here's proof. Here's our story. And then she found journals from soldiers at Camp Douglas talking about the horrific things they did to the infants and the women. So all of those things played into it. After years of visits to Washington, D.C., May Timbimbo Perry finally got the National Park Service to change the name of the battle to the Bear River Massacre and add new signage to the monument. It was only because of the research that had been done by May Timbimbo Perry. That was the only way it happened. It was still be called the Battle of Bear River today had it not been for her, and just her doggedness on making sure we get it right. May Timbimbu Perry also worked as a representative to the White House Conference on Indian Tribal Affairs to get the federal Native American Graves Protection Act passed. She then helped Utah to develop similar legislation, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, to return Native American artifacts and human remains to the indigenous tribes they belong to. She got to meet senators, and she got to meet presidents, and she met all these people in D.C. So when the government decided they wanted to formulate a task force like this that could study those issues and how people are digging now and finding artifacts and human remains and Native American populations in the area having a problem with how they're being disposed of or how they're ending up in museums on display, She'd been there. She'd worked hard. 
And so she was a natural fit to be selected as just one of many that were on that commission. And it was because of the work on the massacre that she'd done had gotten her to that point. It had introduced her to people that could help let her make a difference. Her efforts led to her being recognized with the Utah Women's Achievement Award, and she was awarded Utah Honorary Mother of the Year in 1986, her most prized award. Not only was she the mother of her own children, but she was also considered the matriarch to her tribal family. So we had a chief, a leader, a provider, and he was more or less making sure that the tribe had their physical needs met. But the tribal matriarch was such a bigger role in that they had all the knowledge that the tribe required to live and to make it. The history needed to be passed on to the future generations. And without that, that was as important as food substance. It was. You couldn't have only one and not the other. They were both vitally important. So she was responsible to make sure that all of that history and the knowledge was disseminated to the children and to make sure that they had it to the point that when they grew up to be an adult that they could do the same as an elder. You weren't a matriarch as a young woman. You became that through a life of service and a life of growing and a life of serving your people. She served on the tribal council for many, many years. She was, I think, the tribal chairman for a few years, just, you know, years later. But she never did quit serving her people and making sure that the stories were always out there. And the tribe would cease to be a tribe without that knowledge. So her job was to make sure that everybody had the ability to learn and grow and then be able to pass it on for future generations. May Tabibu Perry not only passed down stories to future generations, she also was well-skilled in beadwork and tanning hides. She was always making buckskin moccasins and gloves and other items that she would sell or often give away, even to complete strangers. The Shoshone are known for their beadwork, and they put their beadwork on everything, and the mountain rose being the most prized thing that you would, that was kind of their symbol, the tribal symbol is a mountain rose. Every day of my life, she would be sitting at the end of the table with the dishcloth on the table, and on top of the cloth would be this pile of brilliantly colored beads, and she would have her needle and thread in her hand, and she would be making something. I mean, every day. And back when she was younger, she would use those skills, and they would go to parks and town celebrations and Fourth of July celebrations and sell their wares. And then you'd go out back at her house, and there would be buckskin, deer skins of all different, they were in all different stages of brain tanning. And there was always a pretty good smell back there, too, behind her home. But there would always be 10 to 20 hides hanging, some of them on the ground, some of them soaking in water. Some of them had the hair still on it, some didn't. While May Timbibu Perry may be best known for writing down the stories of her people, her handiwork also told stories. Clothing used for ceremonies was decorated with symbols that represented spiritual things. Darren Perry remembers one dress in particular that was decorated with small shells. And I just thought, where did he get those shells? And she said, all of those shells were gathered in the top of the mountains along the Wasatch Front and here in the Cache Valley. And then I'm thinking, well, how did those seashells get up in those mountains? And then she told me, you know, she would tell me, just teach me. Before I learned it in school, well, this used to be a big lake. And so the 
the edge of the water would have been up in the tops of the mountains. And that's, the Shoshones knew that, and they knew where they could find these beautiful shells that would adorn these dresses that the Shoshone women would make. I mean, their clothing, their beadwork, it all played back into teaching and sharing a culture that they'd probably been doing for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Maitin Bimbu Perry was a fervent believer that everyone has a story worth telling. She always would tell me, everyone has a story worthy of being told. What is your story going to be? Because your story is equally as important as mine. And so she had the knowledge, even back in that day, of leading a people who had been marginalized their whole lives and still are today. But she was still cognizant of the fact that we live in a society of all different kinds of people, all different values, all different groups. And she was always driven to make sure that Every one of us has the ability to, should have the ability to have a voice. So she gave our people a voice, but it was always important to her that everyone had a voice. I really love that question. What is your story going to be? She really had this awareness of not just the past, but also the future. Yes, and she also cared about all people, all stories. Right, and that's also why I think it's so important to bring up the idea of memorials. May Timbimbu Perry's story goes to show that memorials aren't necessarily designed to reflect all points of view. Whoever puts up or designs a memorial, that's whose viewpoint it represents, unless they bring in other voices. And it's usually a dominant group with a dominant narrative that has the say over public memorials. And so for May Timbimbu Perry, the tradition of telling stories within her tribe wasn't enough. It was just the beginning. Her vision was so much broader. It was about telling the story of her people outside of the tribe as well, and insisting that the broader culture recognize it. And that's similar to what Betty Sawyer has done with the annual Juneteenth celebration and her work to get the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday observed in Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're featuring an episode of the podcast, This Is Her Place which tells the stories of Utah women past and present. And after a break, we're going to tell Betty Sawyer's story. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. This is Katie Swain, the Director of Membership at Utah Public Radio. Thank you to the hundreds of listeners who gave over the last few weeks so that UPR can continue to bring you the essential facts, crucial context, and insightful analysis that these unprecedented times require. We ended the on-air portion of our spring member drive just a little short of our goal, and currently we have less than $2,000 left to reach that vital fundraising goal. If you haven't made your donation yet, please give today at upr.org to help us get there. And thank you. On Access Utah today, we are uh, presenting an episode of the podcast, This Is Her Place, which tells the stories of Utah women past and present. Now let's hear the second half of this episode of the podcast. Betty Sawyer has been a force for the black community in Utah for decades. But when she arrived in Utah in the fall of 1975, she had no intention of spending the rest of her life here. She had just graduated from Morgan State University in Maryland, a historically black school, and Salt Lake felt very different. 
I didn't see any black people. It's like, where am I and what is going on? And so every day I would walk a little further looking. It's like, there had to be black people someplace in this town. And then I would get in the car and ride around and look and still didn't see black people. <laughs> like, I got to go. This is too much for me. And so I finally see a black lady walking down the street on State Street and I'm hanging out of the car like yelling, hey! And she's looking at me like I'm crazy. And so that was my first black person. And we used to make jokes, uh, you know, going to the mall, going to ZCMI Center or somewhere, and you'd meet the eye of another black person and they'd have that starry look in their eyes and you're like, yeah, I understand. I'm the first black person you saw. Yeah, so yeah, Utah was definitely interesting. Betty Sawyer didn't know it at the time, but she would get to know a lot more people in Utah's black community, where working as an advocate and activist would become her life's work. She brought to Utah a rich background in the issues facing black communities, having been raised in a segregated community on the eastern shore of Maryland during the civil rights era of the 1960s. My backyard was kind of the dividing line between the black and white community there. I attended a segregated elementary school, Stephen Long Elementary School. And one summer afternoon, I come home from playing and the principal from my elementary school and two teachers are in my living room. And I tried to escape and go upstairs because I knew that couldn't be anything good. <laughs> if they're at my house, it's like, okay, what did I do? I'm busted. And I was summoned to come and join them in the living room. And over the course of a few minutes, found out that they had come by to ask my mom if she would allow me to be a part of the group of students to integrate the local high school in the coming fall. And being the community person and advocate and activist that she was, of course, she volunteered her 12-year-old daughter to be a part of that experiment. And so, yes, I, again, was one of 10 students that helped integrate our high school on the eastern shore of Maryland in a small city called Pocomoc City. This was 10 years after the landmark case Brown versus the Board of Education, which called for an end to the segregation of public schools. Many schools took their time adhering to the ruling, and Betty Sawyer was not excited about being asked to be one of the first to integrate into the local white high school. Aside from feeling like I had been betrayed, like I said, I'm the youngest <laughs> of six children, so all of my life I had attended events and programs at the high school, at the black school, Worcester High School with my siblings and was looking forward to my turn to be there, to wear the black and gold, to get involved in the glee club and the drama club that I had watched my siblings do, to play sports. All of a sudden, that wasn't going to happen for me the way I thought it was. And so that first day, I remember very distinctly standing on the corner of this local store waiting for the bus to pick us up. There were five of us that were catching the bus at the same place. And that just anticipating what that first walk into that school would be like, 
we tried to laugh it off and joke it off, but we were all definitely afraid and nervous and very apprehensive about what that day would look like. When we arrived at school, fortunate for us, most of the hysteria around integration had kind of subsided. So there were a few protesters out, but not a whole lot. And so the biggest challenge was just being in the classroom and all of us were split up. So I was the only one in my class. We were all in a classroom as the only black student. And so again, that presented other challenges. Aside from school, segregation was still a fact of life in Betty Sawyer's community growing up. Up until that point, our city hall and other public places were still segregated. I remember going to the movie theater, having it set upstairs in the balcony. That's what we did. And having the colored only signs on the water fountain. And as a Black person, my mom worked at the city hall as a domestic along with another job. Like a lot of the parents work multiple jobs in to make ends meet. And she cleaned up the city hall, but wasn't allowed to use the restroom at the city hall. And I recall me and my other sister, the one next to me, Faith, going down with her on Saturday when she was doing her work. And we would deliberately go and use the restroom. (laughs) It's like, my mother cleaned this so we could use this. And the white ladies try to run us out and yelling at us and that type of thing. And my mom yelling at us (laughs) getting her in trouble kind of thing. But just even then, Felt myself pushing the envelope and not accepting what people had said my life was going to be about. Because of challenges like these, both in and out of school, Betty Sawyer immersed herself in the world of athletics and other extracurricular activities. I began to realize that by being involved in athletics, that was my leveling ground. Once I had the ball in my hand, I was determined to prove that I was better than anybody else out on the court and kind of feeling that I owned uh, some pieces of myself and some pieces of what I was trying to do and, and my destiny. And so that's where I put, kind of channeled all of my negative experiences and the hostility that I was feeling and all of those things, I put it into playing sports and eventually sang in the Glee Club but they weren't singing songs that I really liked. So <laughs> at the white school, it was kind of the lean on me songs. <laughs> like, okay, it's not bad, but you know. Unfortunately, Betty Sawyer's success in sports didn't always translate to success in the classroom due to racism and the challenges of integration. My English teacher, I could never get an A in the class. I would get A's on my papers, But when it came time to grading, I would get a B with maybe three or four pluses beside it and couldn't understand why I couldn't get an A with a minus. You know, can I get an A? What will it take for me to get an A in this class if I'm doing all of this work? So I began to kind of pull back and push away and go into a shell saying it didn't matter what I did. I wouldn't be recognized and treated fairly. And I remember one day I had taken a biology test. And when we integrated the high school, most of the Black teachers lost their jobs. They had to move on to other places to get a job. 
but the principal from my elementary school ended up being a counselor at the White High School. And so another one of those times when he came and called me out of class and I was like, okay, what's going on? Again, I'm in trouble. And so I go to his office and he pulls out my test paper where I had probably got a C or D or something. I didn't pass it. And he says, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? You know, and he gives me this long lecture about the importance of always doing my best and not letting the situation around me determine who I was going to be and how I was going to respond to the world. And he used himself as an example and said, look at me. I was a principal. Now this is the position I have. But while I'm here, I'm going to do the best that I can to try to change people's lives so that they'll do the same thing. And I need you to go and retake this test. And this time you better pass it. And of course, I retook the test and got an A on the test. And that was another one of those pivotal moments in my life where I realized that, you know, what I was doing was bigger than myself. Even though my parents and everybody said that when they talked, you know, said you are going to go. But again, he helped bring home the fact that the work that I was doing, being a part of this experiment called integration, was larger than what I was. Betty Sawyer ended up in Utah almost as a fluke. Her brother had driven through the state on a road trip and fallen in love, and he convinced a number of family members to move there with him. She tried several times to leave Utah, but each time something interesting would happen, from getting a job to meeting her future husband. After a series of car accidents derailed her original plan to be a physical therapist, she earned a master's degree in public administration from the University of Utah and was appointed to a position in the governor's office of Black Affairs. She worked in that position under two governors, and much of her work involved making recommendations, engaging in legislative sessions, and reviewing policies and procedures to see how they impacted the Black community. She also helped establish the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and the Martin Luther King Human Rights Commission in Utah. During that time, being able to go to the conferences that the King Center was having and meeting Coretta Scott King and that whole team and family and working on getting the holiday passed, And one of the things she shared with us at one of our trainings was, you know, having the holiday is a big step forward, but we need to establish these commissions to make sure the work around education and sharing those Kenyan principles of nonviolence and institutionalizing the holiday, we needed to have these commissions. And that was her agenda, that every state have a commission as well. So I was able to work on that and get the governor to approve, Governor Bangor to approve that and establish the Martin Luther King Human Rights Commission, which is still in existence today. So I take a lot of pride. But during that time, we worked and were able to get Six South named after Dr. King. And then we followed that with 24th Street in Ogden getting named after Dr. King. And later on, we worked with the coalition to get Cesar Chavez street naming done as well. So that was pretty big. Betty Sawyer also worked on other initiatives, including one to diversify state government. But there were also things that didn't happen. 
1991, Betty Sawyer and her colleagues created a Utah Black Agenda based on focus groups and meetings with the Black community. In 2018, the Utah Black Roundtable created a new Utah Black Agenda, and the issues were nearly identical. Over 30 years later, we're still dealing with the same issues, and there are a lot of reasons why, but if we're not careful, it'll be, you know, 2050, and our children will be dealing with those same issues again. Betty Sawyer wants to present an updated version of the agenda to Utah's new governor, and this time she wants it to be in writing with timelines and accountability built in. Oftentimes, that's where we fall short. We put information out, we share it, but we haven't held people accountable. We don't go back and have them give an account and give a report and show us what has been done and why hasn't it been done and what have been the obstacles or barriers to get it done. And so that's where we are now. As president of the Ogden chapter of the NAACP, Betty Sawyer built on the work she started in the governor's office, looking at issues including educational opportunity, achievement gaps, and discipline in schools, fair housing policies, and criminal justice and police reform. But in addition to these issues of public policy, she also had been driven to educate people more broadly about the Black community and Black history. That's part of what the Juneteenth celebration is all about. And we've decided this year that we're not just going to celebrate it in June. Like Black History Month, that's our history all the time. And so we're going to be pushing out events, activities, education year-round to honor this history and to help inform not just a broader community, but a lot of people lose sight that we were educated in the same school system as everyone else. So if you didn't get Black history class, I didn't either, okay? And so the things I learned, I had to learn on my own when I was younger, you know, my family, that was a part of what we did at the dinner table, learn about famous Black people. And that's what I had to do with my own children because they went to school in Utah. And outside of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, that was about all they were getting, and that was unacceptable. And so we had to share and send books and information to school. And anytime my children had to write a paper, we made sure whatever project they did had an Afrocentric focus. And so they were learning and then being able to share that with their classmates as well. Even with her own educational background in Maryland, Betty Sawyer didn't learn about Juneteenth the holiday that started in Texas to mark June 19, 1865, the day enslaved African Americans in Galveston, Texas, got word that they had been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation two and a half years earlier. Betty Sawyer first learned about the holiday here in Utah through the Salt Lake NAACP. That was 31 years ago, and she has been working on the annual event ever since. This year, along with the caravan, the festival included a Black Utah Town Hall meeting on mental health issues and a Mr. and Ms. Juneteenth pageant, both virtual. They also took music auditions and performances online and piloted a virtual storytelling and genealogy workshop, encouraging young people to document and tell their own stories, an effort that goes beyond the Juneteenth events. Uh, we have focused our storytelling efforts to engage our young people to help lift them up and give them a voice. And so for the past few years, they've been collecting stories as well as writing their own stories to be able to share 
with leaders, share within their small groups, share with family. Again, because oftentimes when you're such a small group in this sea of people that don't look like you, you lose your voice. You, you don't recognize you even have a voice or you shun away from speaking up and standing up yourself because all eyes you feel are on you and you're not important, you're not relevant. And so we've used storytelling to help our young people find their place and take their place in the community. Another way Betty Sawyer hopes to use the power of storytelling is through a Black History Museum in Utah, something that has been on her agenda for 20 years and that she hopes will finally become a reality as people bring resources and energy together in the current resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. In the meantime, she has something to say to those who want to help create change. It's okay to make a mistake. It's okay not to know what we're doing. (laughs) You know, a lot of people hold back and don't get involved and engage for fear that they may say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. And people are being, you know, definitely overly critical right now in policing each other. But that's the only way we learn. You know, we learn through our mistakes and it's time that we are okay with being vulnerable. It's also okay to be uncomfortable, or as Betty Sawyer puts it, to become comfortable being uncomfortable. This has been my life, being uncomfortable, being the only one in the room or one of a few and still trying to make a difference and be successful. So it's okay not to be comfortable because that's what's going to be required. The other thing is the courage to stand and stand alone if you have to. And I think that's an area that people aren't comfortable or willing to make that sacrifice. Why don't most white people stand up when they hear that off-center joke or when they know something isn't right or someone's being discriminated against because of the risk of standing alone, you know? But one of the things I try to believe, even in standing alone, you're not really standing alone. In the work that I do, I remind myself that I'm standing on the shoulders of those who have come before me. I'm standing on the shoulders of my mother and her mother, and other strong women. Recently, in the wake of police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Betty Sawyer has been participating in meetings with the governor and lieutenant governor of Utah about public safety issues. It's just the latest chapter in her long career of activism and advocacy. It's one of those things I often look back and wonder, you know, how people say, why me? You know, and think about why not me? And when we talk about, you know, values and things of that nature, one of mine is an African proverb that's Ubuntu. I use that for decades. It says, I am because we are, and because we are, therefore I am. It just relates to the interconnectedness of all of us, regardless of background, regardless of gender, regardless of race and ethnicity. What you do does affect me, and what I do does have an impact on your life. So let's work together and get this right. So that's Betty Sawyer. Her life and work really show to me that Black Lives Matter and the issues it raises are not some new trendy thing. Betty has been working on these causes and issues and planning Juneteenth celebrations in Utah for three decades. 
And it's interesting that both Mae Timbimbu Perry and Betty Sawyer mentioned that they learned very little about the history of the Shoshone or the black community in school. Uh, Both had to find out about their own heritage in other ways. And then once they did, it became their life's work to change that for the next generations, to make more room for all kinds of stories and histories and show that they're equally as important. So thanks to both of them, the state of Utah doesn't look the same. Uh, The Bear River Massacre is now acknowledged. And we celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and Betty Sawyer and others would also like to see Juneteenth recognized as a state holiday. So the work is ongoing. And recently, the city of Mill Creek renamed a street, Chambers Avenue, to honor Samuel and Amanda Chambers, two black pioneers, to recognize black Utahns' contributions to the community. I'd love to see more of the bland-numbered streets here named after Utahns who've made an impact. Maybe it's time for a May Timbimbu Perry Boulevard, for example. Thanks for supporting our first season of This Is Her Place. We're taking a break for a bit to raise money to bring you new episodes. If you've enjoyed our first five episodes and want to hear more, please support us by visiting thisisherplace.org and clicking on the donate button. We need your help so we can keep sharing these inspiring stories of Utah women with you. We'll see you back here hopefully sooner than later. We'd like to thank today's guests and thank you for joining us on This Is Her Place. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please take a minute to rate and subscribe to the show so you'll never miss out on future episodes. To find out more about the amazing women mentioned on today's episode, visit our website at www.thisisherplace.org. While you're there, subscribe to our newsletter for a ton of insider content. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at This Is Her Place Podcast and at Twitter handle This Is Her Place. Questions? Comments? We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at thisisherplace at gmail.com, and perhaps we'll discuss your thoughts on a future episode. This Is Her Place is made possible through the generous support of Janet Dana Stowell, Gary Anderson, the Year of the Women Initiative at Utah State University, and the Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at USU. This episode was written by Allison Pond and Naomi Watkins. Our executive producer is Patrick Mason. This Is Her Place is produced by Allison Pond with research assistance provided by Meg Rasmussen and editing by Dorothy Abrams. This podcast was recorded on Goshu, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute land. Our theme is composed by Lindsay Wheeler. Additional music provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Brian Hudson Jr., Jesse Gallagher, Lauren Dusky, and Al Kuhn. We'll be back again soon with another episode of This Is Her Place. So we've heard episode five now from This Is Her Place, uh, two extraordinary women, Maytim Bimbuperi and Betty Sawyer. Naomi Watkins, uh, what stood out to you listening to this again? Really the power of storytelling, right? Like it's such a way to not just share your own story, but to, as the listener, to gain empathy for different perspectives and different experiences. And I think that's what I really love about May Perry and Betty Sawyer's stories. So on to season two, and uh, episode six is already out and available. Tell me a little bit about season uh, or episode six. So it features former Governor Olean Walker and our current Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson sharing about their stories as Republican women at the top of their party. I learned some new things, especially about our current Lieutenant Governor.
uh, two fascinating women. So yeah, I'm glad you featured them. Anything else you want to mention about upcoming episodes? I think this week we are dropping an episode about women in ranching, featuring Heidi Red, um, Josie Bassett, who many may have heard of her as being like the girlfriend of Butch Cassidy, but she's a lot more than that. And then a woman who ranched in Nine Mile Canyon named Catherine Fenton Better. So a lot more about cows in this episode, really some fascinating stories. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we'll look for those uh, coming up. And of course, you can find these at thisisherplace.org and wherever you get your podcasts, right? Yes. Please listen and subscribe. Well, thank you so much, Naomi Watkins, uh, co-host of the, the podcast, has uh, joined us once again. Uh, appreciate it, Naomi. Thanks, Tom. Set sail for the Caribbean with us on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. We'll visit Kingston Harbor and Montego Bay and dance to the pulsing tropical beat of reggae and other island styles. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Jamaica, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. On the next Living on Earth, the resiliency of the sea when we give space to nature. That place that used to be an underwater barren was now a kaleidoscope of life and color. We saw it come back to pristine in only 10 years. I had never seen such abundance of life. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. The economic benefits of abundant oceans. Next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Wednesday mornings at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.